Hello, welcome to the Extreme Medicine Podcast. My name's Will Duffin, GP and Medical Director. In this episode, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, renowned author, adventurer, outdoorsman, and the natural navigator, Tristan Gooley. Tristan's based in Sussex in the UK, and incidentally, he's the only living person to have made a solo crossing of the Atlantic, both by sail and by flight. Tristan was last on the show in August 2020. We talked about natural navigation techniques and the hidden joy in getting lost in your surroundings. And in this episode, we're going to explore some of the themes from Tristan's latest book, The Secret World of Weather, in which he explores the wondrous realm of microclimates and how the landscape around us actually shapes our weather. And this will take you to it will take your outdoorsmanship to the next level. Tristan, welcome back. How have you been? Yeah, good. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me back on the, on your podcast. Uh, and it's been a an interesting, challenging, um, never never dull sort of time since we we last last spoke. Uh, but yes, uh, I'm sure that's uh, even more true for you. I enjoying this lovely uh, continental high at the moment on the on the topic of weather and the, all the glorious sunshine. Yes, uh, I I always see these sort of times as a a, a really good uh, blank page for for starting to see some of the signs that that um, I've enjoyed uh, writing about recently. Now uh, we're going to go through some of the key themes in your book to give uh, to give you listening a, 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 a feel for what the secret world of weather is all about. So this is very much a, a teaser. It's a vast topic, um, but we're going to break this down into some of the key themes. And let's go right back to the beginning with weather forecasting, Tristan. It's, it's, forecasting the weather hasn't always been easy. And one of the first people to attempt this back in the 19th century was Admiral Robert Fitzroy. Uh, and he made these little contraptions. I've got one here called a storm glass, which uh, <laughs> this is from the Science Museum in London. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a glass with some crystals in it. And in theory, if the glass is clear, the weather is fair, but if the, the crystals go cloudy, that means thunderstorms are forecast. Uh, but this, unfortunately, has been completely debunked by modern science. Um, but can you tell me, Tristan, the story of Admiral Fitzroy and his attempts to forecast the weather and what happened? Yes, it's um, it's a it's a it's a the nuts and bolts of it are pretty brief. He was he was a pioneer, and like a lot of pioneers. Uh, the, you will have heard of the concept of the, the leading edge and the bleeding edge. If you're, you know, if you're just too far of, too far ahead of the rest of the world, it's it's a tough it's a tough place to be in in any discipline. And and Fitzroy was very much that person. He he personified being just a bit too far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of just trying to be scientific, just trying to take measurements, and from that draw some useful predictions. And what happened was he set out his stall and said. You know, this is what I think is going on, and and we now know he was he was onto a good thing, but he was he was right at the beginning of that that path, and his predictions, uh, it's not it's really not that long ago that predictions weren't dependable, and they, it was certainly beyond because he just didn't have the data really. He had the he had the good idea, but it's only in the last couple of decades where we've started to have both serious amounts of data and the machines to to crunch it. And he simply didn't. So he had a he had a powerful and novel concept, but he couldn't. He just didn't have the raw material to back it up. So his predictions did not um, always come to pass. Is the polite way of putting it. Yes. And that 
the, the public feedback was pretty brutal. And I don't think it was, you know, A led to B, but he 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 had a serious depression and, and took his own life. Um, and and yeah, he, he just personifies that, you know, how difficult it was in the beginning and and it, it's it's still hard now, but there's there's a lot more raw material. Yeah, it's a very, very tragic story, isn't it? But yeah. like you said, to, today we are the beneficiaries of an explosion in science and supercomputers, and we enjoy relatively accurate forecasting. Um, but the weather on the TV screen, what you refer to in your book as big weather, can be very different to the weather we actually experience at ground level. Tell me why. Yes, we've, we've had our perception of what weather is uh, hijacked by the... The, the recent success of data gathering and processing. And, and the weather has been treated as an atmospheric phenomenon, which has led to amazing developments. And by and large, any forecast you look at, if you check out something online, TV, paper, doesn't matter where you find it, you're going to be looking at some pretty big swirls and pretty big generalizations. But they're, they're pretty powerful now. So the, the, the meteorologists do an amazing job of telling us what's going on over several hundred, sometimes a couple of thousand miles, uh, and generally speaking, more than 100 feet above our head. Uh, and they cannot, well, cannot's maybe not the right word there. There is no practical point in them trying to tell us what's going on in our, in our microclimate, because they would then, instead of giving a forecast to a million people, they would have to, they would have to give us uh, one million different micro forecasts. Yeah, so I, I understand that depending on which, uh, which aspect of you on the leeward or windward side of the slope, uh, what the vegetation is around you, what the, the topography of the landscape, all of this plays into the weather that's actually experienced when you're out on the hill walking. Is that right? Yeah, exactly right. Every single part of the landscape. So the topography is, is what most people would, you know, would understand and, and come to expect. We've all had that experience. You, you go over a ridge, and the wind you feel changes. But what I, what I discovered as part of writing this book, well, I should rewind and say, I wasn't sure whether I would write this book because I was, I've touched on uh, and explored weather signs in a broader sense. So some of the big frontal stuff, which I go into a bit more detail in the book, but that, that wasn't enough for me to find, you know, in an exciting challenge to write the book. So what, what I found was, as I started writing this, is that the, the area that it is unexplored as a writer, but also as an outdoors person, is how it changes over over 10 or 20 feet so just as one one example if you walk underneath a tree an isolated tree the wind speed increases it's it's very like the an aerofoil upside down the the wind pressure sorry the air pressure increases on the upwind side decreases on the downwind side and then accelerates under an isolated tree now that's just you know that's not necessarily going to change your whole experience of a day but it's just one sort of insight into how that's the sort of thing will never appear in any forecast but it is a very real thing and it is happening every day all around us and tristan's book is full of these little clues and little facets about the outdoor world that you might never have noticed before uh, but as soon as as soon as you're dialed into it it's amazing how it enables you to access uh, new information and i think see the, the, the outdoor environment in, in a new light. Is, is that right? Yes. One of the things that underpins my work and my fascination with, with all of this, um, the world of outdoor clues and science, is a, a very simple philosophy, which is that there is a reason for every single thing we see or sense. And so if people are new to this area and curious about it, they will probably follow a similar path to, to where I was 20, 25 years ago, which is a, an understandable mindset of, 
I wonder if there is an interesting clue or sign out there. But what I've discovered and, and really enjoyed is the fact that literally everything, and I say to people, and I'll say it to you now, I'm always happy for people to pick something totally at random and say to me, what is the clue or the sign in that? Sometimes it's something really you know, powerful. Sometimes it's something a bit vague, but there is always a sign in everything we see or sense. That's the whole philosophy, isn't it? Everything happens for a reason. And you, it's just a case of asking the right questions. Uh, and and, yeah um let's talk about cloud cloud types tristan um i think there last time i checked there were well over 200 different types of cloud and everyone gets uh tied up in knots about the the nuances of (laughs) different clouds but in your book you condense this down to three key types can you tell me what those three types are and what is the broad significance of each of those when we look up into the sky yes it follows on from what we were discussing just there which is that we start with the idea that everything we see Uh, is there for a reason. We just have to understand what the reason is. And then we find meaning in every cloud. And as you say, there are three families. Um, Within the families, you can can break it down. But the families are where the meaning is found quickly. So the first one is cumulus or the cumulus family. But for shorthand, I just call it cumulus. Uh, And these are the, the, the bubbling up clouds. And they always indicate a thermal. They always indicate that one patch of the landscape is warmer for, for reasons that many people guess, but a few that, that might surprise as well. So they are, they are the simplest possible map. We get more cumulus clouds over land than we do over sea because the land warms up more quickly than the sea. But we can actually zoom right in and say, you know, we are getting a cloud over a town, not over a rural area. We can even say we're getting a cloud over a certain part of a town, perhaps a car park, and not over the lighter colored buildings. So. Every time we see a cumulus cloud, whether it's a small friendly sheep um, or something a bit, a towering, slightly more threatening example, is telling us something very concrete about, and sometimes literally very, very definite about what's going on underneath that. It is making a map of the ground for us. The next um, family are stratus, and these are the blanket layered clouds. If something is flat and goes on sometimes to infinity, um, then it is telling us that there's a very stable atmosphere. And it's basically, it's a slightly dull sign, but it means very little change over the next few hours and any change will be glacial in pace. You know, the, the, the weather world is not about to uh, do anything um, startling. Then we have the cirrus family, which are the high wispy icy clouds. Um, they're sometimes described as hairs or feathers. They're the sort of clouds that you can go a whole day and not notice. So we have to actually look for them because they'll never blot out the sun. They'll never do anything that changes what we experience um, unless we look for them. But they're very exciting in sign terms because they, they are at the leading edge of the big weather changes. So if we do have a period of settled blue sky weather, Cirrus is one of the earliest earliest indications that there will be change. The, the, the science reason for that is fairly straightforward. When a, when a warm front goes through, we get major, major weather changes and warm air slides over cold air. So at the leading edge of that system, um, tens of thousands of feet above us, we get the, the high icy clouds and we can see those. I mean, the distance, um, is, is as much as from London to, to Rome, I believe, is, is how far that leading edge goes. And in, for sign hunters, that's, that's so exciting to have a sign that is telling you, you know, some, something that is you know, many hundreds of kilometres away um, and, and giving you that much sort of power of, of looking into the future. So they do different things. The broad, the, you know, the broad shapes give us the broad concepts, and then it's up to us how much we drill down into those. The biggest question living in the UK is looking up at the clouds is, is it going to rain? Uh, could you give us a quick um, uh, dummies guide to looking at a cumulus cloud and evaluating if it's going to uh, dump liquid on you or not? 
Yes, the um, I in the book I call them the seven golden patterns, and they uh, again it's a it's a sort of a, a visual shorthand for getting an idea of what's going on. So one of the, one of the best is if if if, cloud, if the cloud base gets lower over time, that is a hygrometer. It is measuring the humidity of the atmosphere. And what tends to happen with a lot of these signs is that people pick up the late tipping point when things are just about to change in a big way. So if it's blue skies and suddenly there's sort of dark, dark grey stuff touching the, the treetops, everybody's clocked that it's, it's probably going to rain. But what people don't spot is the, the, the 12 hours before that that there's been a sort of stepping down process, that the, the, the blanket clouds have been getting lower, then, then what we can do within these patterns is actually start to become a bit more forensic about the individual clouds. So we can look at the, the tops. If, if, the, if the top goes from rounded to wispy, then we're, we're looking at ice forming. That's a sign of a cloud becoming very tall and serious um, instability, which can lead to heavy showers or storms. When we're looking at the bottoms, we're looking at a very short forecast. We're actually trying to work out whether an individual cloud is, is raining or not. So a smooth flat bottom cloud is not raining. If it's, if it's ruffled or looks like it has pieces broken off it, it is raining. What about the shade of a cloud? Um, because some clouds do appear darker at their base, large cumulus clouds, uh, but sometimes that can be an artifact of the light. Can you give a guide as to when do you know if that's the light causing that effect and when that is the, 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 there's rain coming, that's, just, that's going to be a storm cloud. Yes, it's, um, it's a fascinating area, but you're right. The, the landscape under any cloud is effectively painting the base of that cloud. The higher the cloud, the weaker the effect. Uh, but once clouds get very low uh, and we've got a, a, a humid atmosphere, the chance of rain is higher. But then we also get this painting effect. So what I encourage people to do is just, if there's a place where you can get to regularly, where you can watch clouds pass over, ideally something like a dark woodland on a hill, you will start to see this painting effect. It was, it was taken to a sort of high art level by the Pacific Island navigators who could not only spot islands well beyond the horizon by looking at the cumulus clouds rising above the thermals on the land, but they could tell from the color, the colors in the base of those clouds, the character of the land and therefore which island it was. So what I would recommend is that you're, you're totally right. And I think we all do still hold on to that um, that instinct that dark grey means more likely to rain than, than fluffy, you know, white. But uh, once we're talking about that immediate forecast, it's actually it's actually shapes, not colours. So um, the the the, the taller a cloud is relative to its width, the higher the chance of a of a shower. But if you want to work out whether a shower is is happening, you look at the the shape because what what's really happening in in the, the science isn't none of the science here is complex, but it's more about observing things than. Than, than incredible science but everybody's comfortable with the idea that clouds you know create rain but it is less well understood that rain creates clouds so when rain falls from the base of a cloud it cools the air immediately below below that cloud to the dew point condensation takes place and that creates these wispy ruffled clouds below the main cloud yeah and that that technique of reading the base like you say that the landscape uh is painting the base of clouds that technique is uh something i've heard some of the polar explorers that we've interviewed on on this podcast describe when they're trying to establish uh the, ahead of them whether there's ocean or whether there's ice because that reflects on the base of the cloud and if you know uh how to read that it could be such valuable information can't it yes the the inuit uh um uh have they use it as part of their, their daily daily sort of toolkit. 
um, a, a different shading, exactly as you say, the, the darkness of open water against the, uh, the, the, the white of the eyes. And the, particularly the Inuit, you know, the, the indigenous peoples of these areas, they have this amazing um, sense of intuition. You know, the precise hue of that colour will indicate sea or, or different types of ice. And uh, it's just phenomenal, isn't it, how, uh, how much information is there when you know what you're looking for? Yes, and that's that's um, an, an interesting point culturally, I think, because, uh, I mean, in, in the book, I talk about the sounds of trees, and I use that. Um, it, it's, it's what seems like a bit of a circuitous route to coming back to weather sensitivity, but the point I'm making there is actually that what seems like an impossible or, or super high refined skill is quite often because we're not used to picking out the signal and the noise, and in everybody's area of expertise, that, that's what we mean by the word expertise is picking out that, that signal effectively. It's, we've got used to patterns, so we pick out the, the anomaly very easily. Um, and you can pick any walk of life, any background. We go through life seeing patterns, making sense of patterns, and whichever patterns we get more used to, that is our expertise developing. And when it comes to looking at patterns in the sky, I start, you know, people on, on, this, on this journey of looking for the, the seven golden, the ones that, that do slightly leap out. And then once you add to those, you, the, the more subtle ones start. And, but if you say to people, you know, you know, person X is doing something amazing in an area, they, they are able to deduce something from the, the slightest change. All that's happened there is we've skipped the, the, the building blocks. We've skipped the two or three dozen fundamental simple ones and gone to the more refined ones. But the refined ones leap out once you know the basic ones. Let's imagine, Tristan, we didn't quite manage to read your book and we, get, we got caught out. Uh, a huge towering cumulonimbus appears above us and, and dumps on us. But we're, luckily there's a, a forest nearby and we're, we're um, uh, faced with the option of a few different tree types to shelter under. Do you have any suggestions on which trees make better umbrellas than others? I do, but I, I will have to say the cumulonimbus, the storm cloud, will lead us down a different path of... of worrying about lightning so that's a slightly different thing I and mean, we can do that yeah. do that as well if you like but if we just say we've got heavy rain and we want to use the trees as an umbrella then there is a counter counterintuitive thing here the 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 simple version is that most people head towards broad leaves there is an understandable sort of feeling that big flappy leaves are going to keep the rain off you better than uh, coniferous needles but the conifers will keep you drier and for a lot longer and again the science really is mind-blowing each leaf, regardless of its size, uh, will hold one or very occasionally two raindrops before um, that, that water is shed. And in the space of something like an oak leaf, you can have 10, maybe a dozen uh, coniferous needles. So a conifer will just hold a lot more water off you. And then, like all these signs and, and, and methods, it's up to us how detailed we want to go, but we can actually drill down into the, the branch shape. So if branches point down to the ground, the, the rain will be shed in an outwards way. You will watch it drip off the edges like a physical, you know, like a plastic umbrella. If the, if the branches reach up to the sky, the rain is channeled towards the trunk, something like a beech tree does that. And if the branches are horizontal, then that makes a very poor umbrella because it will just drop down vertically onto you. So something like an oak tree ticks lots of boxes for many people instinctively. They go, oh, nice big, nice big leaves, nice big sort of canopy, but actually the oak does not hold much water off you compared to something like a, a Norway spruce. You can, you can stand under a, a spruce in, in heavy rain for sometimes half an hour and be relatively dry, but you, you won't get anywhere near that under an oak. 
So it's quite a key decision. And I love the, the paradox of that, that the, the broader leaves are actually designed to channel the, the rain off them. They have those big tips at the end and, and actually you're, you're going to get a lot wetter under there than, than a fir tree, for example. Um, so I just, it's a really easy hack to um, definitely keep you drier if you're caught out. Yes, and you, you'll see that in the, the forest floor. You don't have to wait for the rain to see the effect. If you, every you know, forest floor changes every few feet, and if you're in, a, in an area that mixes up tree types, just have a look at the, at the, at the floor of the forest and you'll see lots of, lots of mosses where, where the rain is getting to you regularly. And it's very, very common to see under conifers just to see that dry needle bed where things like mosses and algae just cannot thrive because it, it just stays dry for, for too much of the time. Tell us a little bit about the wind and how that is modified by local conditions, Tristan, because a lot of us will look at the weather forecast and it'll say, I don't know, moderate southwesterly breeze, and that's what we come to expect. But then let's say we're on a cycle ride, we generally always have a headwind, or we're in a town and the wind is, is coming at us in all different directions that we hadn't expected. What are the factors that modify the wind at local level? Yes, what, what I encourage people to do is just pick you know take your forecast from anywhere and then go and spend 10 minutes outdoors and what will happen is you'll meet 10 winds and none of them will tally perfectly with the forecast wind so let's say as you you were sort of saying there perhaps there's a 10 mile an hour wind from the southwest and we go out and we suddenly we're feeling a, a breeze on our face from from the north now nature's never trying to trick us but we just have to pause and go why is that happening and the answer is always in the landscape so that 10 mile an hour from the southwest is happening but it's happening above tree building or, or, or hill height. Um, so once we get down into the landscape, we are in the book, again, I break it into three things. We've got high winds, main winds, and ground winds. Uh, high winds, we are moving those cirrus clouds. The main winds are what pop up in forecasts and we see pushing the lower clouds past us. Um, the ground winds are what we actually sense and feel. So we, the, there are you know a couple of dozen characters as I, as I think of them, but every time the main wind hits the ground, it will be it will be squeezed between gaps. So it doesn't matter if you're in the center of a town or out in a wilder area, whenever the wind is, is pushed between, whether it's two buildings, uh, two, two uh, mountain peaks, or, or even two trees, we get an acceleration. So the strength will fluctuate depending on the, the shape of the land, but the direction will also change massively. It can change over quite big, big sort of scales. Um, it, will, it will move all, all the way along a valley. Um, if the valley is at all close to the main wind, you know, but it doesn't have to be that well aligned. It can be 45 degrees off. So you can be on top of a hill saying to yourself, oh, we've got a wind from, from close to southwest. And then you descend a bit and you go, well, that's interesting. The, the wind has shift, shifted 45 degrees, which is a, a forecasting sign if you're not aware of that character. So that's where the pieces have to come together. But then we feel what in the book I call a rebel wind, which is where the wind is blowing really quite strongly in the wrong, in inverted commas, direction. And that's just where the wind has been tripped up. It's, it's an eddy. There are eddies all around us all the time. But as once we befriend them, instead of thinking what on earth is going on, we've suddenly got a, you know, a, a force five from the wrong direction. We go, ah, oh, that, that scarp we just passed is creating this rebel wind. It becomes a much more friendly environment because we're, instead of thinking what is going on, we're thinking, I know you, old friend, you're a rebel wind. It definitely feels like a rebel wind sometimes when you're being smacked in the face by something you weren't expecting, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, I love that term. Okay, so that's, uh, that's local winds. Now I'm going to give you a, a scenario, Tristan. We're going to try and put some of this knowledge into practice because that ultimately is what this is all about, isn't it? It's about being in the outdoors 
and applying some of this to improve your, your experience in some way. So let's imagine uh, I'm, I'm going out wild camping on Dartmoor and I'm looking for a good spot to pitch my tent. And which of these two options, Tristan, do you think would be better? So the option one is uh, I pitch on top of a tour. Uh, it's beautiful view. Um, it's, uh, there's a nice flat bit of grass. Uh, I'm, I'm nice and high up in the valley. Or option two, I, I pitch down below in the valley, let's say by a, a, a patch of, uh, of, of gorse, of heather. There's also a nice flat spot. I'm right next to water where I can, I can get some, uh, uh, I, I can use for cooking. Um, and um, I feel a bit more nestled in, a little bit more discreet down there. Which of those two options would you go for? I'd ask myself, which, what am I trying to maximise and minimise? So if I'm worried about wind, then I'm going to come down off high ground, obviously. But it, there, are, there are nuanced sort of areas to this. So one is um, Dartmoor is, is, is not shy of a cold night. And if you're worried about um, a, a serious chill and, and frosty conditions and things like that, you want to move uphill, which for, for many people is counterintuitive. We're used to being cold at the tops of hills and slightly warmer in sheltered valleys. But if you've got clear skies and the temperature, you know, you're, you're seeing stars come out and things like that, and you're worried about temperatures overnight, you want to avoid any dips because those are the, the frost hollows and you, you can easily be 10 degrees colder than, than you might be a little bit further up the hill. You mentioned there heather and gorse. Um, the, the natural navigator me is instantly sort of getting pictures of, about sunlight as well there. You will not, you will not see those, those two plants in a, in a place that is, is shaded uh, continuously. So um, that's, that's, the, that's what, what I'm sort of thinking. Um, it, again, the wind direction in relation to a, to, to those various things, uh, and and then there are you know all the all the sort of very human things like a, a nice view uh, is, is worth having too. So yes, um, if I'm worried about if I'm worried about storms, I'm going to come come down off the high ground. So it's it's just it's a bit of a shopping list. Do I want more of A, B, and C or less of D, E, and F? It's important to consider all these factors, isn't it? <laughs> it can really change whether you have a good night or a bad one. Interesting, having read your book, it has changed my approach to this problem. Um, I've had quite a few cold nights on Dartmoor and I, I always had a tendency to go down in the valley. I like to be hidden away. And I didn't realise until reading your book, Tristan, that cold air flows downwards like viscous liquid and it forms, uh, you get these frost hollows, don't you, um, at lower altitudes. Yes. And I've actually found if I can find a, a place higher up that's in lee of the wind, it's, it's actually noticeably warmer than, than lower down in the valley, which is somewhat counterintuitive. I always felt being nestled in the valley would somehow give me some warmth. But yeah, that, that, that's quite a, a, a discovery for me. Yes. And that's a, a really good example of where you are. You're going to be in one of two situations. They don't mix. So if you've got low winds and clear skies, um, classic high pressure, but a, a winter high, you're you're at risk of, of very low temperatures, and there you do want to a, a avoid the, the low ground. If there's a significant wind, um, then you are not going to have serious frosts. Serious frosts are uh, effectively sort of moved on by wind, and the things get churned up. So you don't get those super sort of frost hollow effects. If there's any any, if you can, basically if you can feel the wind as you go to bed, you're probably not going to not going to have a serious frost hollow effect. So if you're feeling the wind, um, you're, you're, you're safe to go down in, in temperature terms. If, it, if it's very still, um, clear skies uh, and anywhere near winter, then you, you probably want to come uphill. Yes, that's really taking your, your campsite selection 
uh, skills to the next level, isn't it? Now, there's one final topic I wanted to just uh, ask you about, Tristan, and that's uh, in a broader sense, you you are a true polymath, natural navigation encompasses fields as diverse as geography, physics, botany, anthropology, geology, much like in extreme medicine, you know, we draw our knowledge from lots of different, different areas. Uh, it requires that, that broad uh, skill set. Can you just tell me how you've been able to develop the expertise to be able to, to do the work that you do across so many different uh, domains? Thanks, Will. Yeah, I, I do think there is a, an overlap with, with medicine here, and we may have touched on it in our, our earlier conversation, but it's, it's not – the world needs specialists, and I'm a great uh, respecter and admirer of, of, of specialists. But by character, I don't think I, I could do that. The, if, if I had to just focus in one area of geology, there would be a lot of fascinating things there, but I would get intellectually restless. So natural navigation has been just such a happy home for me professionally because – if I go outdoors, I see something and I can't predict what it, it can be. It can be patterns in rocks. And that takes me down a, a sort of fun wormhole of, of geology. And then I'm like all of us, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm not, I'm not, you know, about to get a, um, a, a PhD in geology. So I have to rely on those who've got that. And I go, oh, okay. So that, that pattern is telling me that this, the rocks have done this and that is helping me find direction. And then literally 10 minutes after that, I might be wondering why, a certain leaf is flapping in a certain way and understanding that that's because a, a bird took off. And then, then I have to, you know, stand on a, a different pair of shoulders of somebody who's who studied bird behavior. That's making sense of why that leaf is doing what it's doing, which then leads me onto the botany of the plant itself. So I never, um, it's, it's really it, for, for people who, who do have a sort of polymath type curiosity, natural navigation is, is fun because we, we can hop from, from, as you say, astronomy to, to, to geology to botany in, in in the same day and it it, it does it leads to a, a fun journey but also a certain humility because you're just constantly meeting people who know ridiculous amounts in a specialized way and, and having to borrow for, from them and say thank you and that's a huge part of what we do at world extreme medicine particularly with the podcast and talking to such a diverse range of guests is, is there's so much learning to be had from so from a broad range of different fields and, and in contrast to the 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 very much the dominant paradigm in medicine of ultra specialization i think having a broad range of interests uh, offers you this unique opportunity to be able to mix different different schools of thought in new and fresh ways to create something unique doesn't it yes i i know um worryingly little about medicine even even the first aid courses i i, I find it hard to 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 sort of memorize so i have a, you know obviously a huge respect but also i do the i know i know lots of medics sort of socially and i i do think that the, the pattern spotting and well, diagnosis, obviously, and, and, and that sort of thing is, is there, there is just it's, if you enjoy solving puzzles and, you know, mysteries. Uh, what was that TV series with Hugh Laurie? Um, House. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, a classic. Is that, is that popular amongst your community? Or not? Oh, very is much so. All? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. House. Yeah. And his his whiteboard and the diagnostic enigma. And yeah, it's a, it's, a, oh, it's a great if you haven't seen House, then uh, do do check it out. It's uh, quite a good show for, for all medics out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so maybe uh, after listening to this episode and um thinking about the secret world of weather you'll be you'll be encouraged rather than checking your smartphone your weather app for the latest updates just 
looking up at the at the at the sky and the landscape around you, and maybe making your own inferences uh, about what's about to happen. So if you want to learn more about Tristan's work, you can visit his website at naturalnavigator.com. He's, uh, he's there on all the usual social media channels and his book, The Secret World of Weather is available uh, in, in most places. So do go check those things out. Tristan, thank you very much for your, for your, your valuable insights today. Cheers, Will. Thanks so much for having me back on your podcast and happy yeah, sign hunting. We'll look forward to the next book and we'll get you back then. Cheers. All the best. Thanks, Tristan.